Well, we're still in, in the letters of Peter, uh, and we're about to wrap up. Today is not our last day. I think next week we'll wrap up these two epistles of Peter. Um, today, you can go ahead and turn there. We'll be in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And I'm going to tell you sincerely, it is a heavy and intense text that we're going to read today. And so maybe just to, to set the mood, I'm going to start with the idea of an obituary, one particular obituary, a man named Alfred Nobel. Alfred Nobel was a brilliant engineer and inventor who was born in Switzerland in 1833. And uh, one of his brothers was killed in an accident uh, because the explosive used in that day was nitroglycerin. You remember that from all the old westerns where the nitroglycerin was unstable, it was dangerous. So he invented something that was safer, an explosive called, he called, dynamite. And uh, he made a fortune from this and in the sale of arms and armaments and eventually amassed a fortune of what in today's terms would be over a quarter of a billion dollars. Um, but imagine this successful man sitting down one morning to read the newspaper in 1888 and he opens it up and there's an obituary in the paper and he is surprised to see that it is his own obituary. You see, there was a mistake, a journalistic mistake. His brother Ludwig had died the day before, not Alfred, but the, the uh, journalist thought that Alfred had died, and this is what he had written about Alfred Nobel and what Alfred Nobel read that morning when he opened the paper. The merchant of death is dead. Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. You can feel the sarcasm, can't you? And it must have stung him. It must have sobered him. We don't know exactly what happened in his head and heart, but we do know that several years later, he rewrote his will. And he left almost all of his worldly fortune to establish a fund that would fund prizes, which he said should be given to those who have conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. Alfred Nobel did not want to be remembered as a murderer, as a man who invented a device that killed people. And so he established these prizes that have now been given to over 500 people. People such as Albert Einstein, Marie Curie, Winston Churchill, and Martin Luther King Jr people who have won the Nobel Prize. And today, when we open up Peter, we're going to get a chance, in a sense, to read an obituary. It's not our obituary as an individual, but it's the obituary of the heavens and the earth. It's the obituary of this created world in which we live. And we will get an opportunity, like Alfred Nobel got, to see into the future and to order our lives according to to what we hear in the light of what we read today. And Peter is going to ask a question at the end. In view of this, what sort of lives should we live? What sort of people ought we to be? So would you stand and we'll read this text from 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder 
that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Thank you. You can be seated. So Peter starts out by saying, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. He's gathering up his thoughts. He's indicating that he's about to sum things up. And he's also indicating that there's a continuity between the two letters of Peter. We've just spent months studying them. Um, and so what I'm going to do today for an outline of this is I'm going to try to, to sum up these themes that run through both letters of Peter and which reach their fulfillment in this text. Many, there's a continuity throughout both letters. And so our, I'll, 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 I'll let this text answer six basic questions. And as you read, you'll see that there's six questions here. The questions are why, where, when, how, what, and who. So the first question is why. This is the second letter I'm writing to you. In both of these letters, I am writing in order to, he says in verse one, stir your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. He starts with stirring, and really this is how he started First Peter. First Peter 1.13, he said, prepare your minds for action. Get ready, be ready. Prepare your minds. In 2 Peter 1, 13, he wrote almost exactly the same thing as he says here. He said, I'm writing to stir you up by way of reminder, to stir and remind. Well, why do we need to be reminded? Do we need to be reminded of things? I'm a physician, um, and I can tell you that memory is a very, very interesting and tricky thing. We form memories um, by repeated exposure to things. We have to, you know, repeat something. We have to see something again. We have to memorize it by, by saying it over and again, by hearing it again, by seeing it again, by doing it again. If you're a musician, you do things, you develop muscle memory. Well, what is muscle memory? 
Your muscles don't remember things. Your brain remembers things. What happens is, as you repeat things, the cells in your brain actually change their conformation. They start to link up. And so phys the physical structure of your brain is altered as we repeat things. So that the networks, these sort of the wiring of your brain gets reinforced through repeated practice. And so it gets uh, more established. You know, I like to think and I believe sincerely that a thing can happen to our spirits as they are exposed to the word of God that over and over again, there's a, a sort of a natural, but there's also a supernatural way in which God through his Holy Spirit begins to change the way our soul, the formation of our very souls and our minds. And so Romans 12 would say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm gonna rewire not only your mind, but I'm going to rewire your very soul through the power of my word. But we have to be reminded in order for this to happen. There is room for every one of us in this, in this building to open our sincere minds to be reminded today of a message. And the message in this case, you think, well, what is Peter you know, gonna remind us of today? Is it that God loves us? Well, the first thing he says, knowing this, first of all, well, first of all, he tells us where the message comes from. It comes from, in verse three, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior. What he means is the Old Testament, that's the predictions of the prophets, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior, that's the New Testament, which was being written at the time Peter wrote this letter. And he said, but this is what you need to know, first and foremost from those scriptures. The message today is that scoffers are going to come in the last days. Well, that's not a very you know, heartening message. I'm not very encouraged by that, but there is an encouragement in this, there's an encouragement and a warning. Warning can be an encouragement. I'm a physician, and um, I learned early in my career that when an, an older patient with pneumonia comes in and we treat them, um, that I need to give them this encouragement and warning when I send them home from the hospital. Here it is. It's gonna take you about three months before you feel normal again. Oh, I know your, your fever's gone, your cough's better, you're not producing sputum, your chest pain and shortness of breath have gone, but I'm just gonna be honest, you're not gonna feel normal. And why is that an encouragement? Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm incredibly discouraged by that because at week two, when they wake up and think to themselves, I feel like I'm going backwards, I feel terrible. They can remember, but wait a minute, he said this is normal. Hey, Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that you're undergoing as though something strange were happening to you. This is the way it works. You're not gonna feel okay for three months when you have pneumonia. And when you live in the last times, scoffers are going to come, suffering is gonna come. The Bible has never shied away from a message that conforms to reality. And when we make up messages that don't conform to reality to try to encourage people, we are not doing any favors. That is, that is a disservice. So the Bible tells us that not only scoffers are gonna come, but that when they come, we should not doubt the message or the goodness of God. We don't need to be shaken in our faith, even when, get this, we're about to hear their message, even when what they say 
can start to sound a little bit plausible, maybe even reasonable, maybe even right. And that's when we need to be reminded, when we get sucked in by these messages, we need to be reminded of the truth of Scripture. So, it helps us to know that scoffers are going to come, and it helps to know what their message will be. In this case, the message is our second point. The first was why. The second is where. What is the message of the scoffers? They say, verse 4, where is the promise of God's coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These scoffers look at the natural order of the world around them. They look at the course of human events. They don't see a divine hand. They don't see a divine agency in creation, maybe in creation, but they don't see anything else. God's not really involved in day-to-day affairs. They just see natural processes just unfolding on their own. When I read this, I am amazed. I'm even shocked at how modern this sounds to me. What a modern philosophy. The dominant worldview today in our world is something we would call naturalism or materialism. It is the only thing that there is is matter and energy. There is nothing else, and the processes are just unfolding. It's a really complicated reaction, chemical reaction, but everything that happens is really just a big, long unfolding of natural processes that are just going on their own. Carl Sagan, some of you know who Carl Sagan is, the original Cosmos host, uh, and for you younger people, that was the Neil deGrasse Tyson of my generation. Carl Sagan has famously said, nature is the result of blind chance and part of a pointless process. And doesn't that sound really rationalistic and logical and scientific and empirical? And, you know, even if you don't agree with it, you you, kind of admire the, the guts of a person to say something like that. He must be such a cold and calculating person of science to make a claim like that. I mean, where do these scoffers get their claims? They must be really rationalistic and logical people. Well, Peter doesn't say that. He says that what is actually motivating that kind of thinking is in verse 3. Sinful desires, lusts, another translation says. And in verse 5, he says, they are deliberately overlooking some things. They're making false claims. You see, what's motivating this kind of claim is not an intellectual argument. It's an argument of the will. So let me give you an example. Um, We think sometimes in our culture that all these barriers to the gospel among unbelievers are intellectual. So I had a friend once, a brilliant scientist. He had a PhD in physics. And uh, we were talking about God, and he said, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, and my basis is science, and I just don't see any scientific basis for the existence of God. And, you know, I pressed a little further and asked some more questions and kind of pressed. He said, no, I don't, I'm, I'm, I prefer to look at scientific empirical evidence. And so I asked another question, and he finally said, well, what has God ever done for me? Oh, oh. It's not your mind that's the barrier. In this case, it was his heart. There was a hurting person. He didn't need to hear an argument about the existence of God. He needed to know the love and passion of his Lord Jesus Christ. 
And by the way, he eventually did. But it wasn't through a scientific argument. It was through a hymn, the power of a hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross. We're not only a mind, but we're in emotions and we're wills. And sometimes what looks like a mental barrier, a mental argument, is really an argument from the will. So these scoffers are really arguing out of their own sinful desires. Hey, if all there is is nature, if we're just clumps of meat, sophisticated machines, well, that means I can do anything I want, right? There's no God to judge me. It doesn't matter what we do. We can do whatever pleases us. But Peter says, you're not only not rational, you're irrational in your argument, but you're not even historical in your argument. Don't you know that God created the world? There's, can't you look around and see that God is the creator and the sustainer, that he's present in all things, that he's holding all things together, that he's ordering all things after the counsel of his will, that he's in all things? Can't you see that? And furthermore, Look back at your history. There were scoffers in the days of Noah, and God judged that world. You must remember that. And God will judge the world again. And that brings us to our third point. When? When will God judge the world? Peter says, the same, by the same word, the heavens and the earth, this is verse 7, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I love that phrase, being kept. God is in control of all of this. God is not a bystander who's sitting around waiting to see what's gonna happen so that he can react to it. And God's wrath, so misunderstood. God is not waiting until he's finally had it and he blows a gasket and, and goes off, goes postal on the world because he can't stand it anymore. God is the sovereign, wise, holy, righteous, all-knowing God. He knows exactly when and how he is going to judge the world. We're not waiting for God to get sick of the world. That's the way human beings act. Somebody said to me this morning, aren't you glad that God doesn't act like we do? I'm so glad. God is completely sovereign in his love. God is completely sovereign in his wrath and in his timing. And he knows when that is going to happen. And why is God delaying in this case? Well, Peter tells us in verse 9, it's the patience of God that delays his coming. It's the compassion of God that delays his coming. God doesn't wish that any should perish, but that should all, all should reach repentance. And it is the wisdom of God that delays his coming. He knows the perfect timing. And, and as a warning and an encouragement, he gives us this nice little scientific formula. It says this, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He's quoting Psalm 90, our responsive reading from earlier. Is this a formula that can help us figure out God? If we go back and read, well, now we multiply by a thousand or we divide by a thousand, we can figure out God's plans. We, we can reduce God. We can solve the equation of God. Well, the whole point is not to reduce God in saying this. It is to magnify God. It's to expand God. It is to say, God, he's knowable. Oh, he's knowable. He reveals himself to us. You can know God, but he is unfathomable. 
He's unimaginable in his wisdom. And God will judge the world in his own perfect timing that we cannot currently understand. Well, that brings up a fourth point. How? How is this going to happen? Verse 7 says, and by the way, Peter's into the fire here. He, he perseverates. He keeps coming back to this destructive, cataclysmic event that has to do with the end of the world. In verse 7, he says, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. In verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And in verse 12, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. He is describing what I believe and what I believe the Bible proclaims as a historical event which will occur in the future. He, you know, kind of repeats himself a lot, but he doesn't really give all the details. I'd like to know, the physics major guy wants to know, is this thermonuclear war? Is this a black hole? Is this a supernova? Is this gamma radiation burst? We don't get the answers to those things. If we needed to know those things, he would tell us, God would tell us. We simply know that the heavens and earth are being kept until a cataclysmic event that will involve fire. We don't know all the answers to our questions. But instead of giving us an answer, we have a question posed to us at the end of this text. That question is what? What sort of people? This is verse 11. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for and hasten the coming day of God? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Alfred Nobel got the benefit of seeing ahead at how he was going to be perceived in the future, what his legacy on this earth would be, and he was able to make a change in his life. Psalm 90, verse 12, says this. God, it's a prayer. God, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Seeing our own mortality, seeing how fleeting we are, seeing how fleeting this world is, seeing that it's gonna pass away, changes how we view it and how we live in it. So I live in Green Hills. I don't know if any of you know that part of town. It's just north of here, a couple of miles. If you've ever driven through Green Hills, you know one thing for sure. Not for long. Those houses, the second they get sold, they're torn down and mansions or maybe two houses are built on the one acre lots. So I live in a house and I'm telling you, when I, when I sell that house, if and when that should happen, the ink won't be dry till the hammers come out and start demolitioning that house. So in view of that, how do I live in this house? Well, I love this house. I love that house, and I want to be a good steward of that house, and I want it to be a place where people feel welcome, and I want to be a good neighbor to my neighbors. I don't want to let it go to pot, but I also don't want to invest a big long-term project and put a sink of whole bunch of money into it with the idea that I'm going to get money out later because I'm not. The only enjoyment I'm going to get out of this house is while I'm living there. 
I think this world, there's a, there's a little bit of analogy for this world as well. We should be good neighbors. We should do our best to care for this world and the people in it. Make it as good a place as we can. But we can't invest too much of our hope in this world. There is a text that can, convicts me deeply, and it's, guess where it's from? 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1.13. He says this, Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Have you set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed? Me neither. Me neither. God, give us that hope. I talked to a financial counselor once and he was telling me about the way you plan for the future. And he said, you know, you have to invest in such a way that you, you project out. And he said, but here's one important point. You live a lot longer after you die than before you die. And you should invest your money accordingly. We should invest our hope, our effort, our dreams, our hopes in the new heavens and the new earth while we work as hard as we can, living lives of righteousness and goodness and, and while we bless this current world. I'm gonna summarize how Peter tells us to live because he's spent two letters telling us, answering the question of what, what kind of people ought you to be. He starts out 1 Peter 1 by saying that we are strangers in this world. We are to live as strangers. And he goes further by saying, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and aliens to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. You don't have time for that stuff. That's not right. He says you should live lives of hope. Always be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. But do this with gentleness and respect. He says you should be self-controlled and sober-minded and live lives of prayer he says that you should entrust yourself to your creator when you suffer. He says that you should do good. When you suffer wrong, you should do good. When you're, you're insulted, you should return that with a blessing and not with an insult. He says that you should live your life in 1 Peter 4. You don't live the rest of your life once you've encountered God for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You live your life for the will of God. And he says in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love one another deeply from the heart. And that will bring us to our last point. Speaking of love, Peter's answered this question, very important question, who? Who is God? What do we learn about God and his identity from this, this text? We learn that God is in control of all things. He's sovereign. He's keeping. He created the universe. He will end it. Um, it's sustained by him. He is in control, and he has the timing. It's his timetable. We learn that God is patient, that God is loving, and God is compassionate. And yes, God is loving, compassionate, patient, sovereign. And then we learn that God is going to judge this world wrathfully with fire what how does that fit with the picture that we often have of God 
How does that fit with this compassionate God? I'll bet if you drive around today after church, drive through town and pass enough churches, you will see at some point a marquee out front that says something like this. God never judges anyone. God never condemns anyone. God loves everyone unconditionally. Okay, let's go there. Let's go there with a little thought experiment briefly. I want you to consider two people. The first is Betsy Ten Boom. Betsy Ten Boom is undoubtedly one of the greatest Christians of the 20th century. Betsy Ten Boom was a young lady born in Holland. Uh, she and her family were Dutch Reformed. She was a Christian. She hid Jewish people in her home from the Nazis in order to save their lives. And she was found out and captured and sent to a concentration camp. And there, let me list some of the things Betsy did. She encouraged everyone in the Lord. She served other people. She gave thanks in every circumstance, even going so far as to thank God for the fleas which infested their bodies in the stinking, dirty barracks they were sent to. She led Bible studies. She forgave her enemies. And when she was beaten with a whip by a Nazi guard, she hid it from her sister and said, don't look at it, Corey. Just look at Jesus only. And in the end, Betsy Tinboom died a slow, horrible death. Let's consider another person, a Nazi guard in a concentration camp. What has he done? What's on his resume? Slavery, kidnapping, rape, theft, murder, torture, racism, genocide against men, women, and children. He has been responsible for horrors that are so stark, I am certain if we could go for an hour to the place where they occurred and watch them, we would never recover. And our blood would boil, longing for justice and retribution on the horrible things that took place. So both of these people, Betsy and the Nazi, die and they appear before a holy God. And God talks to the Nazi and says, do you have anything to say for yourself? And he says, I'm proud of what I did. In fact, I'd go back and do more if I could, more torture. And God says, well, okay, don't worry about that. That's okay, come on in, enjoy the food. I don't condemn anybody, don't worry about it. In fact, why don't the two of you sit next to each other at the table and get to know each other better, you and Betsy? A God who did that is beneath a human being. He's subhuman, a God who doesn't condemn, who doesn't care about justice. But let's be honest, it's always easy to pick on the Nazis, right? If you wanna make a point in our culture, you just bring up the Nazis. Let's be completely honest with ourselves. Every one of us in this room and almost everyone on this earth is somewhere in between Betsy Tinboom and a Nazi. What about all of us in the middle? Okay, God will condemn the Nazi. 
especially the unrepentant Nazi. And of course God would never condemn Betsy, the best of us. She is the best of humanity. God is going to grade on a curve in that case. And, you know, the first God just kind of shrugged his shoulders at sin. Well, this God kind of strokes his chin and kind of trying to figure out where that line in the sand is. You know, there's some things that are clearly wrong, and then it kind of gets a little more gray in the middle, and these people are great. They're fine. I'm not sure what to do about those people in the middle. What does God do with that? You know, it's interesting, the flood in a sense, I'm not saying the flood was some experiment God did, but the flood is a good example of that. God took the eight most righteous people on earth, seemingly, the eight most righteous people, and then he wiped out the rest of humanity in a cataclysmic event, a deluge. And Peter, he's, he's into the flood. He mentions the flood multiple times in the letters. And this is what we learn about the flood from Peter. He teaches us that God does not deal lightly with sin. That God preserves the righteous, those who have faith in him. That's who the righteous are. But the problem is, if you read the flood story, the whole problem is it turns out the good people are bad too. It didn't get rid of sin. Sin's a cancer that we have no way of dealing with. Listen, Betsy Tenboom is the best of humanity. But even Betsy Tenboom would tell you that she needed to be forgiven about God. Even Betsy Tenboom, in entering into heaven, would look at Jesus and say, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. Now that I see you, I can't even look at you. I have some things, Lord, that I'll, I need to talk to you about. Every single person on this earth hasn't even lived up to their own standards of righteousness. We've all disappointed ourselves. Don't you want to stand before God and say, God, I need, let me just use a pop psychology term. I just need some closure. I need some atonement. And God said, I, I, don't worry about that. No, we don't, we don't talk about sin here. Just have a seat. But I need to feel like I'm cleansed. I need to feel like I can be in your presence. Yeah, don't worry about that. That's the God who grades on the curve. The first is beneath humanity. The second is no better than humanity, no better than any of us. What is the true God like? The true God is utterly holy. He is blindingly, radiantly righteous and pure and perfect. And therefore, he is wrathful against sin. The Bible says he can't even look at sin. The Old Testament says our God is a consuming fire. Righteousness and purification is such a part of who he is that it says he is a fire. Just, just speaking to how much he embodies those qualities and in perfection. The Bible also tells us that God is a God of perfect and absolute love. Perfectly loving deeply committed to humanity and the world. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? That's a big, big problem. It's a major problem for us, but even God would seem to have a problem. How can a holy and righteous God who must judge sin and who loves humanity, what happens when those two qualities which God possesses in perfection what happens when they collide? There's this unbelievable force that collides with an immovable object. And in a flash, what do you get? Is God destroyed? You get the cross. 
You get the cross. In the cross, the justice and righteousness and holiness of God is perfectly satisfied. Absolutely, legitimately, closure, to use a pop psychology term, atonement, redemption, propitiation, to use theological words. And in the cross, the love of God is perfectly satisfied. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for us. And in this fire of God becomes a force that destroys sin. It destroys the wicked, destroys those without faith. It destroys those who reject God. But for the believer, it becomes a refining force in which he destroys the sin in us through the blood of Jesus, through the fire of his spirit. He will baptize you with fire and with the spirit, John the Baptist said of Jesus. What does that mean? It means he burns up the sin in you. He consumes it with his goodness. Let's come full circle and finish with a story not about Betsy, but about her sister, Corey Ten Boom. Corey was in the concentration camp with Betsy, and she survived, unlike Betsy. And Corey tells a story that after World War II in 1947, she went to Germany to tell her story to Germans and to talk about the forgiveness of God and the love of God. She went to a church in Munich and she says, it was in a church in Munich that I saw him. It came back to me with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me. Her ribs were sharp beneath the parchment skin. Oh, Betsy, how thin you were. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrook concentration camp where we were sent. I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? I stood there, she wrote. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven. She was aware that she stood unrighteous before a holy God. But I couldn't do it. Betsy had died in that place. Could this man erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, his hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours, as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. That's a person who's been in a concentration camp. It shows you the power 
of sin and the power of forgiveness. Still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This is the power of God. This is the fire of God to purify, to cleanse, to judge, to redeem and save. And in light of this, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness?